Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And Kimberly is off this week, but don't worry, we have some great guests lined up. First, I'm going to talk with our judiciary reporter, Madison Alder, about the latest with KBJ, who was confirmed as expected. Then I'll talk with Bradley Gerard from Americans United for Separation of Church and State. He is representing the school district in an upcoming argument over prayer at football games. First, let's go to my conversation with Maddie. So, Maddie, we're recording this on Thursday, April 7th, about 2.45 p.m., just after a historic vote. It was expected, but you're up on the hill there. Tell us what happened and what the breakdown was. Right. So I was in the gallery for the vote. Um, They confirmed Katanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court, 53 to 47. She had support from all of the Senate Democrats and three Republican senators. Uh, So making it a bipartisan confirmation, a win for President Biden. The senators supporting her uh, voiced that they would be voting for her in advance. So the vote was somewhat expected. And, you know, it was it was uh, definitely a moment in the gallery. Senators were there in person sitting at their desks. I I saw a couple people who were sitting in the gallery tearing up uh, members of the public and, and staff that came in. So it was definitely an interesting vote. And. Um, that means the confirmation process is over for Jackson. Yeah, so I was looking at some of the recent breakdowns in the nominees under Trump with Barrett and Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. It looks like Jackson's support was a little closer to Gorsuch's than Barrett and Kavanaugh. I think three Democrats wound up voting for him, so this was closer to the Gorsuch category. The Republicans who did vote for Jackson, is that how you thought it would wind up based on how the process developed? Were you expecting this breakdown if you did have a specific one in mind? This specific breakdown became apparent uh, just a few days before the confirmation, but it wasn't what we expected coming into this whole process. Uh, So when Jackson was nominated, the first Republicans that any of us looked to were Murkowski and Collins, who voted for her at the D.C. Circuit court level, but also Senator Lindsey Graham, who who voted to confirm her to that court as well. And he uh, was was pretty... critical of Jackson during the confirmation process. Um, it, it became apparent at her hearings that uh, he he had hoped for someone more like Michelle Childs, uh, who, who Biden was also considering for the court. She's a, a district court judge nominated to the D.C. Circuit currently. Um, and he, he said he would vote no on her nomination to the Supreme Court. And then Mitt Romney, who, who didn't vote for Jackson's confirmation to the D.C. Circuit, didn't vote in favor of it, ended up voting uh, to, to confirm Jackson to the Supreme Court. So you did have a, a kind of a shift in, um, in support there from, from two Republican senators. Yeah, so you mentioned Judge Childs. I'm wondering, since we're now going to be kind of in a holding pattern with Judge Jackson as she waits for Breyer to finally step down at the end of the term, so she'll be sitting tight for a bit. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what's going to be happening in the lower courts with nominations now that the White House is turning its attention back towards that. We have Jackson, who's now going to be leaving the D.C. Circuit. You mentioned Judge Childs. What are some things to look out for down there? 
So during the process of Breyer announcing his retirement from the Supreme Court and nominating Jackson, the White House has nominated just one appeals court nominee and no district court nominees. So uh, they definitely are, are going to turn their focus to the lower court nominations now that this process is over. And that includes uh, 19 appeals court seats that don't have a nominee currently. Uh, there are five Biden nominees to other appeals courts pending, but 19 vacancies that are either current or expected don't currently have a nominee. And that includes now Jackson's seat on the D.C. Circuit. So Biden has another opportunity there to to name someone to this court that is seen as you know the second highest and is is definitely seen as a feeder for the Supreme Court. So when it comes to Judge Childs, this, this is sort of interesting because you mentioned Graham too, how he switched sides a bit here sort of because of he being upset that it wasn't Childs who was who was picked. We had talked about this a little bit at the time when it was not yet Jackson picked and it was between her and Childs potentially. And this one thing came up where Childs was getting some criticism sort of from the left. And this is somewhat speculative and it would be really interesting and we'd see Graham's head explode. But I'm wondering any if, if any of those criticisms from the left wind up messing up Judge Child's confirmation even to the D.C. Circuit. Do you think that's even a possibility? I don't know if that's a possibility. I spoke to some progressives about what they think of Judge Childs, and they expect her to be confirmed to the D.C. Circuit, but they would like to see Biden address other areas of diversity when nominating someone to replace Judge Jackson on the D.C. Circuit. Um, so, for example, uh, maybe someone who has appellate experience, uh, both Jackson and Childs are district court judges or were district court judges before their elevation to the D.C. Circuit. Um, maybe someone, the MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, has been asking the White House to appoint the, the court's first Hispanic. Um, so all of these are factors that um, the White House will likely take into consideration when determining who would end up replacing uh, Jackson on on that court. Sure. Thanks for that update. I know it's somewhat speculative. I was just thinking, having watched Graham during this, could you even imagine what would happen, even hypothetically, what we would see him do in response? I mean, I've seen a lot of things I I don't expect on this beat, but that that certainly would be something. Well, thanks, Maddie, for that update. And everyone listening, make sure to follow Maddie for the latest on all of the court nomination updates. Great. Thanks for having me. And now we'll go to my interview with a lawyer involved in the next big religion case at the Supreme Court. Kennedy against Bremerton School District is going to be argued April 25th. It presents First Amendment, religion, and speech questions, all stemming from the great American pastime of high school football. At issue is a coach's prayers after games. Let's go to the interview. Bradley Gerard is litigation counsel for Americans United for Separation of Church and State. He represents the school in Kennedy against Bremerton School District. Bradley, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners a bit about your organization, and then we can talk about how this case came up and how you got involved in it. Sure. Uh, Americans United for Separation of Church and State has been around for 75 years. It's the oldest national organization dedicated to the separation of church and state. We do all sorts of uh, First Amendment and statutory work. Basically, um, you know, the mission is that we fight for people to have the right 
to worship, to choose religious beliefs as they see fit, but also to ensure that those beliefs and that the religious exercise isn't used to harm other people. So how did you wind up getting involved in this Kennedy case? And maybe you can give some of the background of the case and how it came about in explaining that. Well, this case has been kicking around for uh, a number of years now. Um, you know, it went up once to the Supreme Court where cert was denied um, after the preliminary injunction hearing. And so um, it went back down. It's been around. We've been following it very closely and we're involved in the lower courts leading an amicus effort. Um, it is squarely in our area of interest. It implicates the Establishment Clause, the Free Exercise Clause, the religious rights of students and of their families, um, and the role that the government plays in people's lives with the religion. So we've been very much involved, and we are uh, very you know, honored and um, happy to be representing the school district in this fight. And for a listener who doesn't know anything about the facts of this case at all, I know the facts are somewhat in dispute and how they're colored, at least, is done differently on each side, which is nothing new. But here in this case, it seems uh, particularly important. Tell us anyway how you see this case having developed. Well, I will tell you a little bit about the, the background. I will say that, yes, there's often you know some dispute onto the shading or coloring of facts. Uh, very rarely do you see a sitting federal court of appeals judge say that counsel for one side is uh, spinning a, quote, deceitful narrative uh, that is utterly belied by the record. Um, and we think that once anybody, including the justices, take a look at what actually happened here, it's pretty clear uh, what was going on. So for seven years, uh, Joseph Kennedy was a, a coach at Bremerton High School, and he prayed with and to the football team on a regular basis. Um, it, it pretty quickly evolved into him standing at midfield in the traditional time of a post-game speech, holding up t the helmets from both teams and praying uh, in, as part of these motivational speeches. The school district found out what was going on, and the school district said, you know, look, you're not allowed to pray to or with the students. We will make uh, a very sincere effort to find a way to accommodate your prayer practice insofar as it is something that's private. We will work with you to do that, but um, you have to discontinue this practice of praying with the students. And for <clears throat> about eight games, that was actually what he did. Uh, he prayed by himself. The school district didn't have a problem with it. Um, and then all of a sudden, uh, his lawyer sent a letter to the school district saying, um, basically, you know, we disagree with what you told him to do. He's going to go back to his prior practice. His prayers will be audible. Uh, students must be free to join him if they want. Uh, and at this game, which ended up being the homecoming game, he is going to continue that practice. They publicized this letter. And so surprisingly, um, you know, a ton of people showed up. Uh, they stormed the field after the game. They knocked over band members and cheerleaders. Uh, there was media, there were state representatives. They all huddled around uh, the coach at the 50-yard line right at the end of the game where he prayed. The school district again told him, look, we are happy to work with you. We want to accommodate a way for you to do this, but this is a district event. We have to have a control over the district event. We can't open the field for anybody who wants to jump on. Um, and there's also a problem with praying to students. And um, his lawyers once again said, no, um, he's going to continue his previous practice. Uh, 
Um, you know, they didn't engage in any of the requests to talk about accommodation or anything like that. And uh, then he did it again, and the school district um, put him on paid leave and said, look, again, we are still willing to work with you to find some way for you to exercise your private religious practice, um, but that has, to, that has to be private. And so he did not reapply for the position at the end of the year and instead brought this lawsuit. And obviously people hear the facts that you just laid out. People have different opinions about them, but at least as it's presented to the Supreme Court, it's within the context of specific legal issues, right? And so what's the actual legal issue that the Supreme Court is going to be looking at these facts through? Well, the the question presented as it's presented by uh, counsel for the petitioner is, you know, is private personal prayer allowed? Um, and again, we think that once the justices look at the record, they'll recognize that there's nothing private or personal about this prayer. This was a, a very public spectacle. So what it comes down to, the real legal issue here is does a public employer, especially a public school, have not only the right but the responsibility to make sure that its employees do not put the students in a position where they feel pressured to pray with, you know, somebody who plays such an important role in their lives, like a like a football coach. And so assume, if you would, that the court is going to look at it through the lens of how the petitioner is putting it. I'm wondering what the significance is of this private versus public distinction. I guess, what does it even mean for a prayer to be private in a situation as you just described it. It doesn't necessarily sound like something that's happening that's just the coach doing this, but it's happening in this public forum. And so what's the what's the significance of that distinction here? Well, I think that's a very good question because I think, you know, that's a, a very common sense way of understanding this is looking at that and saying, well, what does the definition of private mean if it's audible at you know, center stage at the 50-yard line and you're surrounded by other people. And I'm not exactly sure. Now, the district doesn't uh, doesn't argue that, whether it's coaches or teachers, the district doesn't argue that they don't have the right to private prayer. Of course they do. Um, but they can't pray in their role as either a teacher or a coach. And that's what really, uh, you know, the maybe the private-public distinction actually, I think, kind of confuses what's the real issue, right? Which is, was this person praying as uh, pursuant to his official role as a coach? And the students certainly understood that to be the case. When he stopped praying, or when after he went on leave, the students didn't hold prayers at the 50-yard line. It was only when he was there at the time that was traditionally the time for a coach to give a post-game speech. Right. I guess I'm just wondering... Assuming that the court winds up hypothetically ruling for the coach on the grounds that it is private, whatever he was doing, going forward, how school districts or anyone looking at this will be able to draw that distinction? What kind of a world would we be living in if the petitioner wins even on the precise grounds that you've just laid out? And that's that's part of what we've presented to the court in our merits brief is the argument that, look, this is going to be impossible 
for government employers or school districts to figure out this line between whether something is part of your official duty and when it becomes private. Because if you look at this situation from the school district's perspective, this was a very public uh, event that involved the team and the school district was just trying to respond to it. And if the Supreme Court says that, well, at one specific point, it stopped becoming, it stopped being public and started becoming private, then it's going to be just a bedlam for school district administrators or government employers across the board who are sitting there trying to figure out, oh, at one point, I'm allowed to tell this employee, no, you're not allowed to do it. And all of a sudden, now I'm not allowed to, and we risk facing substantial legal liability when we're just trying to protect the rights of students or the public. And so sort of related to that, I'm wondering first, could you conceive of someone doing something that would be considered private that's still out in the open in this way and maybe that's just not what's happening here? Are you saying just there is no way to do something that could be called private and personal in this public forum of a school football game? Well, no. I mean, I think that there are plenty of ways, right? So what the what the petitioner's brief brings up is somebody making the sign of the cross uh, in the cafeteria at the school before eating lunch. And that would fit perfectly with the school district's guidance, right? The school district wouldn't say, you're not allowed to do that, nor, you know, do we think that they really could. Because that that isn't part of, typically part of the job in which you're speaking to the students, in which you're kind of holding court, right? But at the 50-yard line, at the immediate end of the game, at the time of the traditional post-game speech, to do that, to I mean, to call it private, just doesn't, it's not how anybody experienced it on the ground. It's not how the school district experienced it. It's not how the students did. And it's not even how the coach himself described it. I mean, he described it as um, helping to make the kids better people, right? That isn't something that's a private prayer. And so if somebody is actually doing something private, even if it's visible, that's fine. The school district doesn't, doesn't think that it would have any interest in regulating that speech. Right. Obviously, you don't like what happened here, but what would you be okay with happening in this type of scenario in the context of school and prayer and football? Is it just nothing at all can happen? I mean, just cutting the other way, what sort of situation would you approve of? Well, look, I think what, one, these issues are very fact intensive, right? So it depends on what's happening. It depends on what a school district is responding to. Um, you know, what the district did, uh, I think, is what a responsible employer would do in protecting the, the rights of the, the team. So, for instance, when he was actually praying privately um, after the games, after the, the, the district first approached him, I think that's fine. If it's, you know, if, if there's actually a private religious expression, that's important for people. And that's you know, that's, that can be a beautiful thing. There was actually another coach who um, was, a, was a Buddhist who would engage in a quiet um, Buddhist chant to himself at the end of games. People didn't know. Um, and, you know, that's one way in which he was doing something that was for himself. He wasn't actually leading the team in it. He wasn't making it a team event. And so you can imagine a myriad ways in which somebody could do that, which somebody could have a 
personal religious expression. But once you start getting to the point when the team feels like, well, if I don't join, I might lose playing time. That's a different story. And that was what happened here, right? There are students who came forward after he was told to stop that thanked the district and said, yes, I felt like I had to pray or else I would be an outcast from the team and I might not get as much playing time. And that's, you know, that's not fair to do to students. You mentioned before that this case was at the court in an earlier posture in the case. And when that happened, there was a statement that came out from, I believe it was four of the justices, Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, essentially expressing sympathy with Kennedy, with the coach's side of things. So we all know where this court is, broadly speaking, on religion, but it's not every day that you're going into a case literally having four justices explicitly say, in this very case, we don't like generally what's happening here. I mean, how are you dealing with that just as you prepare to go into this argument? Is it some sort of distinction that could be made between what they said then and where the case is at now? Well, you know, I guess I'll acknowledge at the outset that as with a lot of church-state separation cases, we know that it's always a, a tough fight before the Supreme Court. Um, but we do feel pretty confident that once the court actually digs into the record, it will see that the the worries of Justice Alito in the first go-round just weren't really there. And, you know, the district court was very thoughtful and very thorough, same with the Court of Appeals, and they did really respond to Justice Alito's concerns. Now, Justice Alito's concerns were first at the preliminary injunction, injunction stage, where there wasn't a full record. And so there was a lot that he was criticizing, but it was, you know, even recognized in his statement, it was a bit hypothetical. It was, all right, well, let's see what happens when this goes back down and the record gets flushed out. And, you know, upon the record getting flushed out, there's more support for the district, not less, right? The district had a whole number of concerns um, and it just shows how much they were responding to what was happening on the ground. So we do feel confident that once the justices see what actually happened, what is in the record, that they will understand that, okay, yeah, these concerns from before were hypothetical. And in a different case, maybe that will present a tough situation. Maybe there is a school that is saying, look, when you're on the clock, you're not allowed to pray because you're on the clock. And that's that. That's just not what happened here. That's not what Bremerton said. That's not what it would ever say. So are you saying that this is the case that could wind up potentially being dismissed after the argument. Sometimes what will happen is, and this is for listeners, the court will do something that's dismissing a case as improvidently granted called a dig, where sometimes things come up during the litigation that maybe the justice didn't realize at the time and they wind up saying, never mind, we shouldn't have granted this case in the first place. Is there any of that element that's percolating here? This is as good a case for a dig as anything else. Um, because it would be effectively deciding a hypothetical question, which is, you know, the court doesn't do. And so I think once the court really gets into the facts and sees, oh, wow, this is actually, um, you know, this is pretty standard and this is a school district that was acting responsibly and trying to accommodate somebody's private religious exercise, maybe we shouldn't decide it based on this. There's also the, I'm not sure if you've seen, but, you know, we filed a suggestion of mootness um, and, and that there's another reason for them to not hear the case, which is that, you know, the petitioner moved from Washington State, uh, sold his home. Uh, he no longer works there. He and his wife both moved to Florida where they bought a home and are registered voters. 
And the only thing they ask for in this case is reinstatement. Um, so, you know, it doesn't seem likely that he's going to be flying every week from Florida to Washington State for a part-time coaching position at the local high school that pays, uh, I think last I saw, $5,400 a year. Um, so, you know, we think there's another reason that the court can not wade into all of these facts. Correct me if I'm wrong on that point, but did I not see something where the coach said that he would go back to coach if he wins this case? He did say that uh, in response to our suggestion of mootness. Um, you know, we are going to leave leave it as it is with the papers and let the court decide whether that's sufficient to overcome the case being moot, which, you know, we think it's been moot for the last two years. Um, and there's been no statement in the last two years of him saying, look, I'm temporarily relocating to Florida and I will move back. Um, but, you know, we'll, we're going to leave that one to the court to decide. Sure. And so before we wrap up here, I'm wondering if we can take a step back and talk about the potential implications here. I mean, you talk about football in America, that's impactful enough, even if it was only going to involve this really important ritual across the country. And so even beyond that, I'm wondering what you think the potential implications of the court actually deciding the issue would be. I think the implications could be huge. And I think the implications could be huge for a number of reasons. First, uh, I think that there's the potential that it cracks open the door to allowing public schools to have prayer once again. Um, because if there's an argument that, look, what I'm doing is private and personal, even if the students actually feel coerced, even if nobody thinks it's private or personal, um, if all you have to do is argue that in the court, then you'll see, I think, a, a lot of people trying to start introducing prayer into public schools. Uh, I think what you'll see is school districts that are just incapable and not uh, of any fault of their own, but incapable of deciding, okay, what do we do here? When this is happening, we've got a coach who's praying with the team. Now, the team, the students have a First Amendment right to not have the officials of the public school praying to them and coercing them to pray. And if what the Supreme Court says is that this coach, as long as he describes it as personal and private, has a right, the school district has to decide who do we who do we protect here, risking significant legal liability one way or the other. And, you know, for a lot of schools that are cash strapped school districts, the potential of, you know, millions of dollars in attorney's fees, no matter which way you go, is just going to be um, it's just going to be absolutely awful for the school districts. And that's to say nothing of the people that are getting forgotten about in, in this uh, discussion very often, which are the students. Right. These are these are people for whom football is an outlet. It's something that's really important. And you have to feel like a part of the team. You circle up at the end of the game and everybody starts praying. What do you do? Are you going to be the one who gets up and walks 10 yards to the 40-yard line and stands out in front of the entire team as the dissenter? And imagine, you know, as you pointed out, football, high school football in some places in this country is a religion in itself. And the entire community comes out for these games. Imagine being a 17-year-old and you're playing on the team and the coach starts praying and, you know, you're of a different faith or no faith or maybe you're of the same faith but you don't like praying publicly. And you get up and walk 10 yards away 
in front of your entire community, just outing yourself as a dissenter, right? And it's going to put students in those positions across the country. So I think there's really a lot that um, can be done here uh, in, in just throwing what is relatively settled law into a state of disarray, especially based on, as I said before, you know, hypothetical facts. So I think this is a huge case. Well, thanks, Bradley. We're going to be watching that argument and we'll be probably talking about that on a future episode. But until then, really appreciate you coming on and breaking down the case for us. Well, thank you so much for having me. A big fan and enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks again to Bradley Gerard for joining us. And thanks to Maddie Alder for the judiciary update. Be sure to tune in next week when we give a sneak peek of the first April sitting arguments. Until then, you can follow along with the latest at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks for listening. You ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? You ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe at On The Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On The Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now, and we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. On The Merits is hosted by me, David Schultz, and you can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.